to me, the MSPs are not even doing for themselves the things that they're trying to sell to their clients. They're leaving the doors wide open on themselves and not having the right proper protections in place. What's shaking? Welcome back to All In. I'm your host, Rick Jordan, and I have something to ask you. Can you please share this episode with at least three people? We don't promote, we don't take sponsors. The only way we continue to grow is when you share this out. That means that we can help more people. So content that you hear today that you love, share it out, especially today for MSPs, managed service providers. What's shaking, MSP audience? I have an amazing partner and friend. I say partner because we were in a movie together a few years ago. And this dude is managing partner of Nashville Computer Inc. An advisory member at the 20 MSP, which is a, a collaborative amongst MSPs. It's pretty cool things. And participated in over 15 publications. And as I said, we were both in the documentary Cybercrime a few years ago. And this dude, you're just gonna wanna listen up because he's just an amazing father, mentor, speaker. Charles Henson, welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, Rick. I'm really, really glad to be here, man. Man, I, I love everything that, that you've got going on and everything that we've done together too. And we really started to get to know each other during cybercrime, you know, at the premiere yes. really is when we, it was like, hey, what's up? Because it was 12 people, yeah. right, in the film. And That's right. There wasn't any filming together of the 12 people <laughs> and, and the first time we saw each other was at the premiere which is a pretty fun experience too yeah that's i never would have thought you know 15 20 years ago yeah, hell even five years ago that i'd be walking on a red carpet in la at a movie premiere you know and then to be there having so much fun with everybody i mean it was it was truly a blast and it's something i'll always remember yeah, man, life takes fun turns, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I was starting my IT career in glorious fashion at the Geek Squad. And from what I know of you, you had an entry-level job at an IT company too, right? Yeah, actually, I started uh, at Nashville Computer. It was Intel Computer uh, back in 88, and I started at 91 as a part-time tech. Oh, so you started and, at the company you now own. Yeah, that's Whoa. absolutely correct. So 30 years later, I'm now owning the company. And, and it's funny, Rick, I'll, I'll just share this quick story. When I was interviewing at 21 years old, the, the guy sat behind the desk, Carrie Couch, he's like, well, what's your long-term goal? Like, what do you want to do in five, 10 years? And I said, I want to sit in your chair. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I don't think you'd like it over here. It's not very fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's kind of a sad state, isn't it? And it's a... Uh, I see this a lot because you, you know that I'm acquiring 50 to 70 over the next couple of years and 50 to 70 yeah. MSPs. We're going public here in just a few short months. But that's a, a lot of it's driven by that, man, is just the weight and the pressure that MSP owners and, and CEOs carry on their shoulders. And they forget that this can actually be fun, too, man. Oh, yeah. You, you just have to build the right team, have the right people around you and get it to where you need it to be. And, you know, through the years, I became that guy for him. So he was very comfortable, you know, sitting in that chair once we, you know, as the business evolved and we started to grow it and, and you know, we had a lot of fun. And I often tease that, you know, I was like, man, I spent more time with you than I did my parents because I was, you know, 17 when I left home, uh, joined the military. And then I worked with him for it was 29 years when he retired. 
So wow, I didn't know, cool. you know. Out of all the years we've known each other, I never knew that you were in the military. Thank you, my man, for serving. Oh yeah, yeah. Thank no you. Worries. What branch? It was uh, Army National Guard. Okay. Eleven Charlie mechanized him. Yeah. Were you ever deployed? Uh, never deployed. Uh, during that time, it it was uh, there was nothing going on. It was from uh, eighty seven uh, through I think it was ninety two. So nothing really going on. We didn't have to go to um, Saudi Arabia. Uh, yeah. We were left out of it at the time. That's so interesting because you see a lot of this past year and a half to to where the National Guard has been deployed, especially with. Mm -hmm. the George Floyd riots last year, you know, just a, a lot of the uprisings that we've had. Yeah. And it's been, uh, I really appreciate, you know, cause we always think of the military, at least I'm, I know a lot of people do as those that are overseas, you know, fighting our battles for mm -hmm. us, but we never forget about sometimes the, the unrest at home. And I know even during the pandemic too, it wasn't just, you know, keeping the peace during the, the riots that took place. It was also assisting in, in building you know, the, these makeshift hospitals and making sure the traffic was, was flowing with them and everything was set up. It's just amazing, man. It's a, it's a different branch that doesn't get a lot of attention or conversation, but it's equally as important because it's like everything that we need here at home from our military yeah, is what the yeah. national guard is. Yeah. I mean, they, they had us volunteering, doing certain things. I mean, I can, I can remember, um, and, and these are the things that you never hear about that like the national guard do. There was, a. Uh, a lot of raining and flooding and we actually went out and saved a bunch of farm animals uh from being you know stuck out and out in the it's kind of funny when i think back now you know treading through the mud with a big pig you know in your arms but i mean the things you do for people you know but that's not really what the national guard's for but you know i mean hey we were there it was raining and um you know the farmer called and was trying to find somebody to help him out because his, his animals were starting to you know go underwater so we were there, but, you know, I mean, but you're right. I mean, National Guard, a lot of people don't look at it as, you know, uh, I mean, it's an extended branch of the military and they're guys that are at the ready. They volunteered, you know, we've take the, taken the oath when, and we've sworn that, you know, we'll protect our country and do whatever we need to do. And that's exactly what we're ready to do at any time. So uh, there's there's a lot of guard members out there, air guard, army guard, and, you know, they're they're at the ready. And a lot of them you may work with, you may not even know it, or they may be in your office building. So, you know, uh, have some conversations with these people and you'd be surprised what you can learn. No doubt, man. I love your heart and I love the heart of our military too. You know, I envisioned as you were talking about, I was just imagining in my head, you carrying this big old muddy pig. <laughs> it's hilarious and it's an interesting memory you have but i mean it's the same thing it's like you're doing whatever you need to do for society and it brought me to i mean i know it's different because it's a pig versus a human being but some of the images that are coming out of afghanistan over the past mm -hmm. couple of weeks too you know and one that really stuck out in my head was someone from the marine corps you know a soldier from the marine corps who is just giving water into this just worn out afghani child she was a girl and just see, seeing that image just you know both crushed my heart and filled it up at the same time sure yeah, sure it, and Absolutely. it's like that's the heart of our military man yeah uh, and you see these photos come out you know and I, I um i understand why people don't want our nation to go to war or want us in any kind of conflicts 
And mm -hmm. at the same time, it's like stuff just happens because there's bad people out there and our military doesn't exist to police the world. We actually exist as kind of like a, a lighthouse as a country, in my opinion, to, to show what humans are supposed to be like and how to treat other humans. So I'm, I'm very grateful when things happen like you, where you're saving animals and where there's these images coming out of a place like Afghanistan in the middle of turmoil, it's where we're just giving water to children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Man, it, it's like touching your heart. It does for sure, my man. So you were in the military and then as a guardsman, and then you transitioned into the computer tech, right? How did that yeah. first 10 years go for you? Because I mean, you said this was about 30 years ago now. You weren't owning it in 10 years, were you? No, no, no. I, I was working as a tech. So I, I started out, what I did is I, worked, I lived in a small town and you could either be a, a farmer, work for a farmer, or you could work at the factory. Hmm. And I tried the factory work third shift and like, and I was like, this is not for me. So I joined the army, I uh, got the GI Bill and put myself through uh, school here in Nashville. And with that, they had a placement department and the company was looking for a part-time person. And so I convinced them instead of letting me work in the mornings, I could work in the afternoon. And um, so that was my first, you know, thing of convincing somebody to step out of what they wanted and allow me to uh, step into a position. And with that, I learned, you know, how to build machines, how to mm -hmm. install the operating systems. And then from there, it got into the network. You got to remember, this was 1991. So you were still running on DOS systems and, you know, really no internet. No internet, yeah. you know, there was no email back. And so that's, that's really where I got started. So the first 10 years was really just getting in there, understanding how hardware worked, troubleshooting it. And then we started getting into networking and sharing of files and, and sharing of systems and things of that nature. And really having started at the beginning, I think I have a big advantage over a lot of these young guys that come in today where everything's already automatically connected. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I worked with Novell back, you know, 30 years ago, Novell Netware was zero trust, right? In, in our world today of technology, Microsoft, you know, came out with their Windows Server and it was like, everybody has full rights and we trust everyone. And then the admin would have to lock it down. Novell had it right 30 years ago when they said, trust no one coming into your network each person their own privileges and so you know i look back at that and i'm thinking wow we've gone full circle you know from the old as 400 machines that were the main big brain sitting back in somebody's office and you walk up to the counter and it's just a dumb terminal it's a computer that does nothing except connect back to the mainframe and now 30 years later we're at cloud computing where you need nothing but a dumb terminal a, you know a laptop or something that doesn't really perform and you're connected into the cloud where all the horsepower is. So when you think about how technology has evolved over the 30 years, it's, it's really, really cool to see that the guys back then were, were already forward thinking about like what things should look like in the future. And I think, you know, some of these big companies came in and they're like, wow, we can harness that energy locally. And, you know, and I think, technology kind of took a, a, a sideways step for a long time. And now we're back on that trajectory to get back where there's, you know, there's, there'll be devices. You, you'll be able to walk into the airport, go to a kiosk, buy a machine, connect it to Wi-Fi, and then have access to all of your files back at the office or, you know, in the cloud or, or wherever. 
And so, you know, I mean, when you think about where technology has been and how it's evolved and where I've evolved as an engineer, you know, it was, it started out with, with uh, the old AS 400 kind of stuff, no bell, zero trust. And, you know, it's just, um, it's come a long ways. It's come a long ways. For but sure. It's, it's, kinda, it's interesting kinda the cycles on it too. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's completely come back around because zero trust for, you know, cause there's a huge entrepreneur, general entrepreneur audience that listens and zero trust is what Charles is saying. You know, that, like you don't literally don't trust anything to come into your network unless you authorize it first. And yes. that was one of the points that I was making even on Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago with the whole Kaseya breach that took place. It's like mm-hmm. the, I, I put the, it wasn't necessarily, you know, because there's software, right? There's software issues that are, that are always present. They're always going to be there. There's no way that you can ever code perfect software right off the Correct. bat, right? There's always patches, there's fixes, there, there's mm-hmm. corrections, there's updates, there's upgrades. And then all the way down at the bottom of this, you know, in, in like a supply chain delivery kind of scenario, which this sort of was, but sort of wasn't, you've got the end user that's there, that's using the software. But in the middle of these breaches were, were the MSPs, you know, meaning companies like yours and mine. And that's on all the global and national media that I did around this breach. That's where I was placing the responsibility because MSPs still left their clients completely wide open. And to me, the MSPs are not even doing for themselves the things that they're trying to sell to their clients. They're leaving the doors wide open on themselves and not having the right proper protections in place. Because you know, we're a Kaseya user, right? Mm-hmm. And e- even though we're an on-prem user, we were a target for this. And we saw the right things in place to where it's things like you know, zero trust, like with application whitelisting and those kinds of things. And I'm getting a little technical for people here, but that's like saying only this stuff over here is allowed to do anything. That's yeah. zero trust. Right. Right. That's how we were so safe. And even to the points where our Kaseya server was, is completely separated from all of the other stuff that we have, whether it be cloud or on premise, it's completely separate. So it doesn't interact whatsoever with our internal systems, which go yes. figure is one of the best practices that was put out after the fact by Kaseya saying, this is how you should structure your on premise setup. It's like it wasn't Kaseya, you know, they got breach. They had a hole in their software that happens. And the response was amazing. But then that middle layer, man, the MSPs is what you're talking about that are missing out because of the 30 years ago, the experience that you had to where you said that these guys with Novell got it right 30 years ago. Yeah. And and when you you look at Novell and you look at BlackBerry, when you had a BlackBerry phone, there were no applications that you could install. So think about when you get a new computer, you get a new phone straight from, from the provider. And Apple's really locking this down now. They're like, look, yeah, you, have yeah. to, you have to say whether or not you're tracking their location. That, you know, If you get the latest update on your, your iPhone, it will ask you that. But imagine getting a brand new Apple iPhone and installing the updates on it. And now any new app that you put on there, they're going to ask you, do you want to allow it to, you know, Listen in on your mic. Do you want it? And, and there's a reason they're asking these questions. So you need to be thinking as a consumer out there, you know, do I want to be doing that? And then for MSPs, if you really want to protect your house, just jump on Amazon and buy the MSSP playbook. I mean, <laughs> shameless reason, plug. I love it. <laughs> I mean, the reason I wrote the book was because I had seen over 30 MSPs getting hacked. And I told my guys, I, I went to the team and I was like, guys, how do we not be one of those? 
30 people. And then the numbers kept growing. Uh, yeah. We worked with hunters. We worked with MSSPs. Uh, I mean, I had interviews with people and I literally created a checklist for my own IT company to go out and, and harden our network security and trust nothing and set up two-factor authentication on everything. Uh, you know, we looked at making sure that no password was ever duplicated on any device, on any network, anywhere. I mean, it, it took us literally six months, Rick, to go through that. And as we were going through that process, I started documenting it. Then I started creating a checklist because I said, this is a checklist that we need to use, not just for ourselves, but we need to go to every single client and make sure that they are not using passwords. We're not, you know, we're not using, uh, we're making sure 2FA is on everywhere for every single mm -hmm. client because it's, and, and I use the analogy when you get on a flight and you put your, your oxygen mask on first before you put it on your child. And so for an MSP, you really need to go put your oxygen mask on, get a SIM, get a, uh, advanced threat detection, you know, get a firewall, this next gen, with, um, you know, DLP, data loss protection in place, so that if somebody does try to send credit card information or social security numbers out of your network, that the firewall is going to block it for you. So, I mean, there's so many things that you can do to better protect your business that, you know, you really want a trusted advisor in an MSP. And if you're out there shopping for an MSP, ask them how do they protect their own home. And That's a that great question. It's like asking a carpenter, hey, what kind of house do you live in? Yeah, absolutely. You know, or you know, if you're building a home from a general contract, it's like, cool, can I see photos of your house? Not just yeah. the outside. I want to see photos of the interior. Let's see how this thing looks like. Can I tour your mm -hmm. home and see, how, see yeah. how you do things for yourself? Absolutely. Because if they don't have those policies and procedures in place, if they don't have a run book, if they don't have, you know, the uh, business continuity plan, not just a disaster recovery plan, but that continuity plan, if they don't have those in place and they can't show you what those look like, uh, you know, how, how are they going to better protect you? And what's going to happen when you get a breach? Yeah, for sure. If you didn't catch it and you're, uh, you're a managed service provider, the MSSP playbook is Charles' latest publication that's on Amazon. And you need to go pick it up. It's a fantastic foundation and an amazing blueprint to help you. Because uh, I know that when I listed things out, this was uh, a couple years ago as we were making a huge transition. Is, you know, Because this industry, cybersecurity, Charles, you know, is ever evolving. Threats oh, change, yeah. the methods change, the types of ransomware change, and there's just different threats that take place all the time. So w when we enumerated this out a few years ago, you know, back in those days, it was like, hey, let's just throw in some antivirus and you're good, right? And mm -hmm. that's obviously not the case right now. And as, as we looked at this, at all the different attack vectors and all the different areas that need to protect a small and medium-sized business... And comparing that to what the enterprise level stuff does, like a big boy, like a Walmart or something like that, right, to protect mm -hmm. their systems, we came up with something like 27 different layers that have to be in place just because of how things can get in. And some yes, of that, really. too, that, that is forgotten about, and this is something that I talk about all the time, there's the, the human elements to this because no matter what you do, man, no matter how much prevention and protection and all these tech tools and, and crap that you have in place and install on, on the network, uh, firewalls, applications, whatever, there's still some dude in any organization that will click on any freaking link 
that yes. he or she receives, you know, and then that's just like, whatever, why do we even care? <laughs> because this person, Johnny over here or Susie over there just blew up our entire security by opening the gate, by lowering that drawbridge just for somebody to come in. But yeah. then that's where the breach happens, man. And th that's the part I'm sure you address this in the MSSP playbook too, is that the, and I use this phrase all the time, the inevitable breach mm -hmm. will always happen. And after that, what's your plan for when that does happen? It's a response. Sure. It's an incident response plan. So just like you're talking business continuity in the world of cybersecurity, if you hire somebody that's that doesn't have a clue to what an incident response plan should look like, that's not someone you want to do business with. And quite frankly, if you're an MSP that's trying to provide quote unquote cybersecurity services, I'm just going to be blunt. Can I be blunt today, Charles? Is that Absolutely. okay? Yeah. You're yes. going to be out of business because your ass is going to be sued for everything, for loss of revenue, for business downtime, all of that, because you were negligent trying to provide a half-ass solution. Yep, absolutely. 100% agree. And at the same time, dude, it's overwhelming. And this is where my heart kicks in, right? Because stuff does change so fast. And it's very overwhelming for MSP owners, for people in our shoes, because there's so much to keep up with. Especially yeah. if you're a smaller MSP, it's very difficult if you're just a one or two man shop or if you're doing less than a million dollars in revenue a year, there's so much you have to try to cover. But that's where you there can pick up your book or partner with somebody like my company because both Charles and I, everyone have good things going on for all MSPs that are out there. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and look, I mean, there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of noise out there too. There's a lot of vendors that you can reach out to and everybody wants to sell your product. Find a partner that's going to work with you and teach you. I mean, one of the things, and, and I'm not plugging Huntress here, but I absolutely love Huntress because they have their trainings for MSPs. They set you up with a demo. They show you how to hack windows. They show you how to, how to think like a hacker. And I've literally done demos and put them on LinkedIn using the tools that Huntress supplies for you because they're a partner. They're out there educating the MSPs on what's out there, not just, hey, come buy our tool. It's not about buying their tools. It's about educating the MSP space. And those are the kind of partners you need to find out there. I love that, man. Let's give people a little inspiration today because we just broke them down a little bit, right? <laughs> tore, tore them to shreds, but also gave them a, a glimmer of hope too and that there, there's ways, right? There's ways that you can build yeah. up and try to scale with the MSSP playbook. There, there's ways that you can be a part of something bigger like with, with my play, trying to build a nationwide brand uh, with reach out, with, with the acquisitions we're doing to give people a good home, their clients, their customers. Yeah, but under... All the umbrellas, I know this because we talked about this too when we were having lunch a couple weeks ago in Chicago. You were here for an event. That's where we caught up. I'm like, dude, you need to come on my show. This will be awesome. But as we were talking, you, this is a stage that I'm not in yet that you are, that you started diving into some real estate investments. Because of your success over the years, now you're diversifying and setting yourself up for success after your success. Tell me a little right. bit about that, brother. Yeah, so you know, it's, it's, it's funny. My wife and I, uh, we're looking, she wasn't my wife at the time, I guess we were about to get married and we're looking for a home and my father-in-law and mother-in-law, you know, they, they were like, Hey, you guys aren't going to pay rent. You're not just going to waste your money and, and pay somebody else's property. We want to help you get that first home as soon as you get married. And so we're, we're driving around and the real estate agent shows us this property. And you got to remember, this is back in 1991. And um, we looked at this property and it was a uh, $24,000 
uh, it was a middle unit of a quad. And we're looking at it and we're like, I don't know if I like this. You got neighbors on each side. It's almost like an apartment living. And I remember my father-in-law telling the real estate agent, he said, if they don't buy it, I'm writing a contract. And came about that. I was like, why would you, why would you buy this house? You already own a house. And he said, because I can make rent off of this. That 1991, he bought that house, $24,000. At the time it was rented for, I think, $550. I think it rents for $1,250 today. Think about that ROI. Wow. One of the things that that happened was it made me start thinking, wow, he's right. I've always paid rent. I've always paid somebody else. And so they helped us buy our first rental property. And it was a house um, in a back then. It wasn't the best neighborhood, but it was in a good, decent neighborhood. And we bought the house for seventy two thousand dollars at an estate sale. Spent thirteen thousand dollars fixing it up. And it's worth over half a million today. And so that kind of thing is available for people if they're willing to take that risk. Now, what we did is I went, uh, we ended up going with a 15 year mortgage instead of a 30 year because we wanted to get it paid off sooner. Well, you can take, if you fast forward, uh, we owned up to seven units at one time. And so we're right now, we, we went back down to four. Because the uh, some condos that I bought at a really sweet deal using owner financing, and and yes, that is a, a thing, and it is available out there for people to for sure to have a conversation about. You can do owner financing and set up a note with the people that actually own the property, and then you can rent out that property, and that's exactly what I was doing, and I was cash flowing uh, that monthly rent. You got to set set aside the funds for when the HVAC goes out, when the roof needs to be repaired, when the plumber needs to come be called or the locksmith at three o'clock in the morning because somebody's drunk and broke a key. You know, there's things that you have to look at, right? That doesn't so happen. Not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, about it while you're in Spain on vacation. Uh, but, it, you know, there's, there's so many advantages. And I can tell you, Rick, that out of, you know, owning real estate for the, the past 20 years, I've had very few of those calls. Everybody always thinks the worst, right? But you set that funds aside, you set your money aside for for when that rainy day is there, when that system breaks, when you need to do some upgrades in the house. And I have a rule of thumb is that we do one to two upgrades between every tenant. So if a tenant's moving out, we're upgrading the bathroom or we're upgrading the kitchen or we're replacing some flooring, we're doing some upgrade to make it a better property. And you, two things happen there. Number one, you're maintaining your property. It doesn't get really old. You don't become indebted, you know, for all the stuff that has to happen uh, after you've not been doing maintenance. And number two, you can charge more rent because now it's been updated and it's newer. And so I have a deal right now that I'm working. It's in Michigan and the guy's doing owner financing. I'm literally working with a title company today to set the closing date. And I'm going to be uh, flying up to Michigan. I'm going to sign the papers and he's doing owner financing on it. So I'm going to rent that property out and it's going to be paying that mortgage. It's going to be paying somebody else's. And if you don't think that this can actually happen, I can tell you that the house that I bought for $72,000, I made one and a half mortgage payments on it. Wow. One and a half. And that was because it was empty while I was doing some renovations for one of those months and the other one, it just didn't rent for a couple of weeks. 
And so those are the one and a half mortgage payments I paid on that property in 15 years. So when you think about the ROI that you can get from investing in real estate, it's huge. Now, I will tell you, just as a tip, that a single family home is not as good of an investment as a multifamily. So I would much rather own more of the duplexes that I own than the single families. Because when a duplex, if one side goes empty, the other side is still generating money. When the house is empty, the house is empty. There's no money coming in. And so that's my real estate tips for you is, is to get out there, take the risk, take the chance, get you a mortgage. If you're not comfortable with a 15-year, get the 30-year and then be do, do your diligence on, on paying more and paying it off early. I've never had a mortgage loan go full term. Why would you? Just go out there and pay it off as quick as possible. Add money to it and you'll, you'll be surprised how soon you can pay one off. That's awesome, man. So when you're talking about these upgrades too, because you're saying set aside money for when the HVAC goes out, when there, there's maintenance or repairs that have to happen, do you set a specific percentage? You know, let's like what's an average amount of rent? So we'll just say two thousand dollars a month, right? Maybe. Yeah. So twenty four thousand dollars a year. How much would you set aside for those upgrades? Those one to two upgrades, if, if a tenant stays one year or two years. Yeah, the, the best thing to do, and this is this is the way I run it, I just leave all the money in the account. So when the, the, the rent is coming in, just pretend it's not even cash. It's not even your money. You can't spend that. That goes toward the rental properties. And at one time, like I remember the, the first quadruplex, <clears throat> the the new roof for that thing cost $10,000. Mm, yeah. And I remember having $25,000 in the bank going, well, that's half the money, but I won't have to do this again for another 25, 30 years. You know what I mean? Like, like it's a big expense, but it only happens every X number of years. Yeah. And so my advice, especially if you're getting started out, is treat this as a business and you don't let that money mingle into your daily life. So don't take that money out of the account. Set up a separate bank account. All, all rents go in there. The uh, deposits go in there so that you have that, so that you can give it back to them. And all your repairs get paid out of that. And it's a tax write-off as well. I love your approach, my man, because I've had real estate experts on the show and they're all like, Gung ho. I mean, I'm talking building, you know, multi million dollar portfolios and all this, which is not, that's their life. You know, I, I love your approach to this because, you know, this isn't, you don't even have to be like a, a real estate tycoon or even a one percenter to do exactly what you're doing. It's, a, it's an approach that really anybody that structures and manages their finances appropriately can dive into. You know, rather than all these frivolous things that are that money is spent on, you can invest in real estate and start to build up a rental property, even maybe one every two years or so. So think about this, Rick. This is I've always had this four hundred one k dad, you know, four hundred one dad program that I've I've done with my kids. Is if they want to buy a new gaming system, I'll meet them halfway. They the money they got to you know get there. They want a car, I'll meet them halfway. And what I did when it came to them ready to move out is I helped my daughter get a duplex. And so the way the duplex works is she lives in one side, a tenant lives in the other. Well, guess who's paying the mortgage? The tenant. The tenant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, my daughter has upkeep. She has other things that she needs to do, but I'm setting my kids up to where they don't have to step in and immediately be in debt. They don't have to go out and, and, you know, struggle the way that I did, you know, yeah. 
you that if, if I don't work the full 40 hours, I'm not going to be able to eat and pay my rent. Right. So I want to make sure that I can do that. So think about what could you do to help your kids even even if you bought a duplex and rented it out and then use that money, that cash flow to pay for their room and board while they're going through college, you know, and then once they get out of college and they're getting ready to start their career, maybe you turn that house over to them. And so then it's, an, it's, like, it's an income producer to them too. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. here's the thing I get my kids involved to make sure that they're uh, paying the taxes so they know what needs to be done. Yeah. Uh, and then also making sure that um, I've, I've asked the questions of, Hey, if I gave you this house today and you could sell it for $250,000 or make $2,500 a month, which would you rather do? And they always say, I'd rather have the $2,500 a month because I can keep making money on that thing for years. And I'm like, great answer. Yeah. So it's great opportunity to educate and talk to your, your kids about this stuff as well. That's really cool. My man, before we sign off, there's a, I appreciate your insights on that. Cause it's, it's just father advice, dude. <laughs> and I love that. It's the same thing. Like my kids are involved in pretty much everything that I do right now. My kids even get a salary from the company because of the work that they do. You know, my 14 year old yeah. son, actually learned Adobe Premiere, which is what cybercrime was edited in right behind you. It's made to edit full length Hollywood feature films and it's completely professional. And he's the one that's doing all the editing in Adobe Premiere now at 14 and is working for the organization doing that. You know, so he's learning and you know, he's got more money than any of his friends because he's doing that right now, man. And it's, yeah, it's really cool. But then it's teaching him financial responsibility. It's allowing him to be able to build something for himself. And even the, it was a couple of months ago. He's like, dad, I know when I'm 18, I can buy a house. Right. I'm like, yeah, you could. <laughs> so he's already thinking ahead just because just like you, man, you're getting them involved in things yeah. that are going on and just showing them what life can be. Absolutely. Yeah. I love Good it, brother. Stuff, you've got um, you've got something else that I want to bring up before we we finish here is password guardians. We were yes. we were talking before, and you know you've got so much that you've got going with the MSSP playbook and password guardians. What are you doing with that, and what is that exactly? So password guardians is pretty simple. You know, you, a lot of people, and, and I joke about this. You know, somebody said, "Well, I can't remember my password," and I said, "Well, let me go look on the dark web and see if I can find it for you." Uh, because, you know, a lot of times the passwords are out there on the dark web and it's, it's no fault of our own. It's we went to LinkedIn and we signed in, we used a password and LinkedIn let that leak. Same thing with Facebook, same thing with Dropbox, all these different programs out there, these platforms out there, they're giving away your password. So what Password Guardians does is it ensures that you are practicing good password hygiene. It's monitoring the dark web for your passwords. It offers uh email phishing so we can test your company, your, your employees to make sure they're not going to click on links they shouldn't. And then there's on-demand training. It's ongoing training to make sure that your people can and, and do get the cyber training that they need so that if somebody does pick up the phone and call, like you mentioned earlier, um, then they're not going to click on that link. And, and the way I like to look at it is two things here is if you take your, your car to the mechanic, and you hand them all of your keys. Don't you want to know that they duplicated your keys before they walk into your living room, right? Because they made a duplicate of your house key 
or your office key. And they have that information because they know where you live because you fill it out on the paperwork. And so Password Guardians is going to look on the dark web to see if anybody has a duplicate of your password out there. Number two is the uh, phishing and the link clicking, the, the on-demand training we talked about. So you said we can put all these firewalls in place, advanced threat detection, all this stuff. But if a user clicks on a link or they get a phone call and the hacker tells them which website to go to, it allows them to remotely control that machine. The way I see that is it's like your kid opening up the bedroom window and letting a friend come in. They may not really be a foe, but it's somebody that you didn't invite into your house. Right. And so with that, we want to make sure that you were teaching the employees not to open those windows and not let somebody come into the house. Don't click on those links. So it's, it's a really great tool to be able to better protect your business and make sure that you know that your employees are getting the training, test them to make sure that they're watching and listening to the training and then know if or when your passwords are actually compromised so that you can go make a change immediately before somebody else is in your systems. I dig that, man. And the, uh, the awareness part and the education part is so huge now. So if you're listening, here, here's the brutal truth about this is there's movement now with insurance companies that will not provide organizations cyber liability insurance anymore, which means you get breached, you're up a creek. You have no financial reimbursement whatsoever for the damages that you've suffered from that breach. If it's money taken out of your bank account, if it's some kind of intercepted wire transfer that one of your people fell victim to, they were gullible enough to click on a link and think that they needed to send $250,000 to this fake vendor that doesn't even exist. They send it to the hackers. Someone gets in your network, you're down for business, you have ransomware. These insurance companies are starting to say, if you do not train and educate your people your employees on not to click on these links, which is awareness training, cybersecurity awareness training. If you don't have that in place of your organization, you are not eligible for this cyber liability policy. And there will be audits that are coming up too, where they will go back and ask these questions for those who have it now to be like, hey, are you doing this? When's the last time you completed it? Just like something with HIPAA. Right. To where you have the, but that's government regulated. But now insurance companies are saying, if you don't train your people, if you don't educate your people in cybersecurity awareness, we will not cover you. Absolutely. And, and, you know, if you have a conversation and you talk about cyber liability, they're going to send you a questionnaire. And depending on how you fill that out and the regulations or the, the check marks that you use, underwriting may not approve you if they do approve you. Because at the end of the day, insurance companies, they want your money, right? <clears throat> they want you to pay them. But when it comes the to the house them, always wins. It's just like it, a yeah. casino. I mean, it, it, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not going to want to pay out. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. You know, let me ask you, Rick, do you think if you pulled up to a, a gas station and you left your car running and you went inside to get a drink or use the bathroom while you were filling up and you came out and your car was gone, you think your car insurance would cover that theft? Or do you think they'd say that was negligence on your part? Yeah, that, and that becomes the choice of the underwriter. I would feel it would be negligence. It would be. And that's the same thing going to happen. You get cyber liability insurance and you're not doing the training. You're not putting the proper tools in place. You're not putting the proper firewalls in place. They're going to say, well, you didn't lock down your system the way you should have. You aren't using 2FA. Your IT provider is the one that's at fault here, not you. 
And so we're not going to follow you. We're not going to, you know, have your, we're not going to have your back on this and we're not going to pay your claim. And then the MSP is looking at, okay, I didn't do my due diligence. So now maybe I'm the one getting sued. Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. It's just going to trickle down the line because at the end of the, at the end of the day, man, somebody pays. Whether the, yeah, insurance, the, end of the day. Yeah. if it's the insurance company or it's the, the company that was breached or it was the MSP that was servicing this company, one of those three is going to pay, man. Yep. Yep. Brother, I appreciate you being on. We can find all the information about the MSSP playbook and password guardian at NashvilleComputer.com, correct? Well, MSSP playbook is on Amazon. And then Password Guardians is PasswordGuardians.com. Sweet. And good deal. Nashville Computer is the, the IT company here in Nashville and in Michigan. That you bought after you started working there as an entry-level IT person. That's amazing, Absolutely. man. Amazing story. Charles Henson, thank you for being on the show, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate you, man.